Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Ruth von Bernuth, Associate Professor in the Department of Germanic and Slavic Languages and Literatures and Director of the Carolina Center for Jewish Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's here to talk about her new book, How the Wise Men Got to Helm, The Life and Times of a Yiddish Folk Tradition published in 2016 by New York University Press. Ruth, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Max, for having me. So first of all, how did you come to write this book? And also, if you could introduce uh, the listeners to the genre of Helm stories. Okay, let's start with the Helm stories first, because there are endless. uh, So I can only give you a short introduction, and then probably everyone else could add more. It is actually stories about a town full of fools. This is at least what the people believe from the outside. The question is sometimes, who are the fools? The people from the outside or the people who live in Helm? But in Yiddish tradition and also beyond Yiddish literature, Helm is believed to be the place where sometimes the stupid, but maybe also the wisest of the wise live. So um, I didn't grow up with Helm stories. But I was introduced to them when I took a Yiddish course in Oxford. It was a Yiddish summer school there. And one of my classmates actually said, uh, you have to work on Helm if you're interested in fools. At the time, I was just writing or just beginning to write my dissertation, which was on natural fools. So there's a very different kind of fools, um, and especially about a court fool from the 16th century who was believed to be um, like a pro- prophet or a wonder of nature. And we would probably call those people nowadays mentally challenged people. Um, so there was a really different kind of foolishness. But he said, you need to look into Helm. And when I finished my dissertation, um, I thought, oh, that might be a good idea now to maybe venture out a little bit into other foolish studies. And actually, I was introduced in Yiddish. And my idea was to write a book about the connection between German and Yiddish literature between the 15th to the 18th century. I had planned one chapter on Helm when I discovered that Helm stories are very similar to stories of a German book, which was written at the end of the 16th century. And then... um, I came to Israel, I was on a fellowship, and I thought maybe I start to write the last chapter of this long study and have Chelm as sort of the end, looking into the modern world of Yiddish. What happened was actually that I, every week I promised my colleagues and friends, next week you will have the chapter on on Chelm. But I never came up with a chapter and they started tell me, to tell me, this is going to be a nice book. It's so much material you have. And they were right. So in the end, I made it into a book. So um, your first chapter is titled How the Wise Men Got to Gotham. And it looks at the place of these stories in post-war and also contemporary Jewish culture uh, in America. Why did you begin here and and how did the wise men get to Gotham? Oh, that's that's a good uh, question. So actually, when I had written mo- most part of uh, most chapters of the book, uh, 
I approached the press and we talked about it. And uh, there was one chapter left, which was a modern chapter. And it's New York University Press. And I thought maybe I can feature New York in it because New York as the city of Gotham is also... Gotham is the city of the English or British fools. So I thought that may be uh, a good good last chapter. That was the original order. And then one of my readers suggested, why don't you start with a chapter with stories most of your readers will be familiar with and then venture out into the 15th, 16th century with a lot of unfamiliar stories and unfamiliar texts. And so this is how this order came into being. So I, I, I start indeed with New York as a place where actually after the war, a lot of stories about the wise men of Chem were written both in Yiddish, but also in English. And, and so it was a good place uh, to start. And in the 19th century, actually, the notion came into being that New York is, uh, is a foolish place. And then they used this word from England. So could you tell us a bit more about the about about the stories in 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 post-war and contemporary Jewish culture? Yes, I mean there are many takes on this and that's what I try to uh, put into this chapter. I would like to maybe mention two different writers, or very famous Yiddish writers I look into. Uh, one is uh Trunk who wrote a story about the wise man of Chelm. And actually, he uses this in order to commemorate the Polish Jewry, which was just tragically uh, dead by the time he wrote this this book. But this is the entire book. It is about Chelm, but it's actually about also a monument to the uh, Polish Jews. Um, he writes it in Yiddish, uh, publishes uh, in in Buenos Aires, because there were more readers at the time and it was published then in New York. Um, and unfortunately, this book was never translated. It's, a, it's really a treasure. I, I highly can recommend to read this. Um, and he that's the only Chen novel, actually, the real a real Chen novel we have. He has chapters and it's, it's an ongoing story with a lot of puns um, towards religious Jewish life, but also... Con, uh, Polish life and the mud of the Polish uh, streets uh, you would find in a Polish shtetl. This is one. And then the other one, a lot of people are familiar with him. It's uh, Isaac Bashevisinger, the Nobel Prize winner, who wrote children's stories, Helm stories. They were translated into English. They're well known. This, they were translated into other languages as well, French and German and other languages. Uh, so everyone is more or less familiar with the, the, the singer Helm stories. But what I discovered by looking into newspapers and um, that actually there are earlier Helm stories by Singer and they were actually meant for, uh, and geared towards adults. And they're political stories. Uh, it's a very non-Jewish Helm, actually, he's describing. So it's um, that Jewish religion doesn't play a role at all. It is more a history of mankind, he describes. He starts with the beginning and how the world was uh, created um, and then goes on. And there is uh, there they have an emperor in Helm. There is a white Helm and a red Helm. They have a wall in Helm. So there's a lot of contemporary 
uh, relations and puns he's he's using, and they are actually really funny and uh, also uh, interesting to read. Um, I always thought as a literary scholar of mainly medieval, early modern uh, literatures, it's it's hard to find those books from the 16th, 17th century. But actually, I found out that finding singer stories from the in the forwards um, is much harder even. I never had a printed copy in my hand. I had to go into microfilms and then digitalized versions of it. But um, I was never able to hold, hold a paper copy in my hand, which was a funny uh, side effect of my research. Yeah, you would have thought that there would be um, plenty of um, paper copies available, considering it's um, large circulation at, at one time. Um, uh, so going back to... Uh, the book, you turn to look at the foundations of European foolish culture uh, in the late Middle Ages, uh, including how this was figured within Jewish culture. Uh, tell us a bit about this. Yes, because I think that's, that's very important. In order to understand how those stories emerged and from which culture they come from, or cultures, I probably should say, um, I wanted to look into what is a foolish culture because I think this is what the 15th, 16th century is very much about. Um, You find a lot of literature at the time in which you have a lot of jokes, but at the same time, a very serious content. And that's often goes together, which is hard for for us to understand because we tend to divide literature into, oh, this is the serious hyper-literature and this is the lesser popular culture. Um, and I think that's what, what we have to bear in mind, uh, that this is not true uh, for this time period. So what, what I wanted to describe is how Jews actually participated and also used this carnivalesque, um, I'm using a term coined by uh, Bertin, a c- culture in order to, to also create literature um, and uh and even an own culture. And so that's what I venture out. This is very much far away from Helm. I'm aware of this, and I know that some readers commented on this. But I need this. As I said, this is the foundation. And I really think I could show that fools play an enormous and a big role in in Jewish culture of the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. So in Chapter 3, you look at the Schildberger book. Um, Tell us in, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about this. The Schildberger book, this is the German chapbook I talked about already. That's the book which was written at the end of the 16th century. It is actually um, an anti-utopian story. It is... Uh, rewrites uh, Thomas Morrow's Utopia in a way that it describes um, a group of people, actually people who live in, in a certain town, which is called Schildburg. The men of, in this town venture out, they serve um, in many courts and all over the world. The women are really not happy about this. And they write a letter to the men and say, 
and say, you have to come back home. It's not going well here and you need to help us. And they use a, the, 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 this text. It has a lot of puns in it. And they say, this is just, we are lonely in our, even in our beds. So anyway, so there are, the men come back and they say, what do we do? We have always helped the um, foreign uh, kings and courts. What, what can we do that they don't call us any longer? Um, and they come up with the idea, let's behave like fools. And then, this decision actually turns into the becomes their second nature. And in the end, they're real fools. And that's what the book describes. So they build a town hall without windows. Um, and then they try to bring in light and they take a box and shuffle sunlight into it and they carry it into the town hall. They carry, they actually try to chop wood on a hill, then carry it down. Then a foreigner comes, a stranger comes and says, why, why do you do this? Um, uh, you could have just, just roll it down. And they say, oh, okay, good idea. So they carry it up again and let it roll down. And all kind of stories, people who are familiar with the Chelms tradition uh, know those some of those stories as well, because that's then the longer way of how it was then translated into um, Yiddish or but it's a, it's a. Um, I think we will touch on this in, in, in a few moments. So that's that's a book was what was very successful. It was reworked many times, um, and was actually popular until the early twentieth century. It's still around. If you would describe something going on in the administration, for instance, um, in Germany, you would still use. Oh, they behave like the Schildbürgers. Children nowadays in Germany are not so familiar with those stories, but again, the, the word is still around, so people are still familiar with it. Well, that's very interesting. So, um, yes, yeah, so you, you mentioned that, uh, yes, in Chapter 4, you turned to look at the for, the four surviving old Yiddish uh, translations of the Schilberger book. Um, tell us about these translations. <laughs> So what is interesting, it takes a little bit longer. We don't know exactly when the earliest uh, book was was printed in Yiddish because this is lost. It's, so that's uh, what, what we know. That the, the, But we have uh, throughout the 18th century, we have four different editions. The second one um, printed in Amsterdam in 1727 is, the I would say, the most important one because the... Yiddish redactor or author or translator really reworked the text uh, and he was not shy to add rhymes or to uh, even add sometimes to change the, the stories a little bit. Um, we have a, a tendency, which is also true for other old Yiddish texts, that some of the more Christian or or non kosher things are left out, but still they still that they still go to church, so that's still in the book. So we have we have both. Though so they don't they don't go to a bath on Saturday, but on Sunday, but still, as I said, they go to church, uh, listen to a sermon. Uh, that's that's not a problem at all to to bring this into Yiddish. Um, I think it must have been a uh, quite successful book because it was print, reprinted at the end of the 18th century again. And then it made it probably into Eastern Europe. Um, this I'm still trying to locate a copy of one of those prints in, in one of the Eastern European libraries. I couldn't do this so far, but I'm sure that it was distributed there. Great. So you in Chapter 5, you look at how 
the idea of the foolish sage persisted into German literature um, of the Enlightenment period and how these Enlightenment reworkings influenced the Jewish masculine. Um, tell us a bit about this. <laughs> Yeah, this is a sort of a little bit of a detour. Actually, what I should say uh, uh, is that this book describes not only the emergence of the Helm stories, but actually describes also how the, the Schildburger Buch, the German version, evolved over the t- uh, time. And this is um, uh, as hasn't done before because um, German literature and literary studies are usually divided be- between those who do medieval early modern studies and then the others who do modern uh, literature and therefore to, to put the two t- or the various time periods together is uh, rather unusual and so what I actually do I use Christoph Martin Wieland who is a German writer of the Enlightenment who reworks heavily the Schildburger Buch you would hardly recognize the stories um, but still, he has references, and it's. I think it's very clear that he refers to the Schildburger Buch as one of his founding texts. I use him, and he's very important because he became very influential and was a well-read author by the Maskelim, especially those who lived in Eastern Europe. They... They regarded him highly as, 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 as an author, and so... His history of the Abderites became an important example. And so what he actually does, just to give you, um, the, just to show you how different the text is, he doesn't use Schildburg anymore as a place name. He uses Abdera, the ancient Abdera, where he thinks the fools live. Um, and it was so popular that the Maskelim used Abdera as in order to describe the Eastern European world, especially Brody is uh, often used as, as the modern Jewish Abdera. Um, and uh, Josef uh, Pell Im- and others imagined themselves as, as being living in Abdera and being the only philosophers who are true and 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 can uh, and understand um how the world goes and but but all, all around, around them are fu- the, the 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 town around them is full of fools and that's actually a setting we which we find already in Wieland which we don't find in the book before and the tradition before we don't have anyone who's wise uh, or is o- opposite to the people who live in the town we don't have this tension but Wieland introduces this and this is re- uh, they take the masculine take this on and think that that's ex- exactly their role that's how they think they are um, depicted and seen uh, in their own Jewish shtetl or Jewish town so in chapter six you look at how imaginary foolish places came to be associated with real towns. Tell us about this. Yeah, I always like to say to my students that 19th century likes to pin everything down. They try, they, the scholars in the 19th century really try to find everything on a map, on, on the real map. So in the 19th century, the notion came into being that Schildburg is actually a real town in Saxony, it's Schilda, and we have many books, actually early scholars in German studies try to identify and to, uh, 
and to reason why Schilder in Germany is the real Schildburg. And they don't even get the idea uh, that, that Schildburg is a fictional fictitious a town and um, that you don't need to find it on a map in order to talk about it. But they, for them, it's really, as I said, very important. So what happens is in the, in the course of the 19th century, this becomes nationalized. So Schilder is then not only seen as a German a town of fools, but it's sort of a German non-Jewish town of fools, whereas Jews were associated uh, to be fools in towns like Fürth or Prague, or, or Brody, for instance, um, but that that's a very dif uh, a differentiation we, uh, which takes place at the end of the nineteenth century. And then there are various things happening, which is described already in the previous chapter. Uh, also, that that we have um, was a masculine Isaac Meyer Dick, who is a famous Yiddish writer or the grandfather of Yiddish literature, as he's sometimes called, who lives in Vilna and is uh, very, very friendly towards the Russian influence and culture. He's not a friend of Polish Jews. And he is actually the one who starts to use the German Schildburger Buch and the stories and I'm pretty much sure that he was either knew the German stories or he even knew the Yiddish text. I unfortunately couldn't prove this um, because we don't have a possession of his of his library. But he uses the Schildburger stories, and then he says is this very earliest text he writes is um, the wisdom of a certain town, Ches or Chet, um, which then within a couple of years becomes then associated with Chelm. His hint towards Helm is is has it has also a political dimension because as I said he he was not in favor of Polish Jews and I think he is making fun of of Polish Jews um, and and so when the first stories come into being folklorists easily pick up on them saying oh that's the that's a real Jewish place of fools. That's not like the German Schilder, but this is now we have uh, a place for the Jewish fools. Um, and interest interestingly, there is nothing like this in the Polish notion of this. So uh, someone who is well-versed in Polish culture would not know that Chelm is a place of the fools, but it's very well uh, known, of course, in um, Jewish culture. I'm wondering if you could um, tell the listeners about the story that you you start your book with uh, about the the visiting Israeli academics, because I think that um, indicates this sort of clash between imaginary, foolish place and and real place very very well. Yeah, actually, this is a, this is a story, and I'm so sorry because I cannot tell it like Chava Tunyansky, uh, my Yiddish teacher and mentor in Israel. She is just the the best storyteller ever and whenever you meet her especially in the national library I had this uh, various times you find her she would sit and then she starts to tell a joke and she starts in hebrew and then ends in yiddish or sometimes in spanish and it's it's it's, it's wonderful so i try my best um chava tonyanski went to 
Poland together with a group of other Israeli star, uh, scholars to visit Poland. And they finally arrived in Chem. And everyone is so excited about this because nobody would believe that there is a real Chem. And that's what I actually encountered in Israel many times that I would tell people I work on Chem stories and they said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then I would mention, oh, yes, and I w- I've been to Chem. And they look at me like, how can you have been to Chem? This is not a real place. And I said, no, actually, there is a Polish town called Chem. So they all very excited. There's a full, this bus full of Israeli scholars thinks everyone wants to take something back home to prove that they've been in Chem. So they line up in front of a tiny kiosk on the marketplace to find uh, to buy a souvenir and the polish people at the time and there was the time of the re- uh, rationing they think oh there's some there must be something uh very rare we cannot usually buy so they line up as well and they had no idea why the israelis would line up whereas uh they they really thought there would be probably something like whatever coffee bananas or something else so that's what uh, Hava did. And this is why I actually had her souvenir as a picture in the book. So whenever you open the book, the very first image is, is, this, uh, is the, this tiny pennant from Chelm from 1984. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, so your final chapter explores the surge in Chelm stories during and after World War I. Um, tell us about why there was this surge and also how these stories have been used to critique Jewish society. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's an interesting um, shift. Or We have a, a couple of Jewish foolish towns, as I mentioned before, um, but only after, the, after World War I, when in Poland there is a lively Jewish culture and, and, and the lot is printed also in Yiddish and, and we have many Yiddish newspapers. There is a folklorist, uh, Menachem Kipnis, who starts to write stories about Chelm as the city of fools and he publishes in the Hind in the daily Yiddish newspaper for pr- printed in Warsaw and this becomes very popular. There are a lot of stories. There are over 80 stories he publishes there. Um, and the people from Chen don't like it at all. So they, they complain, actually. They write to the newspaper, please stop doing this. We cannot marry off our children. The, and wh- what? so he, he has this larger collection of, of those stories, which then actually sets Helm really on the map. And then after he had published this, nobody else would question that Helm is a city of fools. He is describing Helm, especially in the newspaper articles, what I discovered that he published later a book as well, but then he took out all the references to the so-called real Helm. In the newspaper articles, he really refers to also current events and uh, mentions that he been to to Helm as a correspondent for the newspaper. Um, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Oh, just about how the stories were used to critique Jewish society. Yeah, I think that that Helm is. I like to describe it as like a joker. You can use Helm for every any purpose. So we will have someone. For instance, we have a Soviet Yiddish writer. He uses Helm in order to critique. Jewish life and Jewish religion, and he has it's called anti clerical folks, folks, so anti clerical uh, 
stories and he doesn't critique actually the people of Khan, but only the rabbi and the rabbi becomes the um the yeah, the goal of 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 his critique. Uh, we have, as I, as I said already, and I mentioned also Singer, who uses this as a critique towards capitalism and socialism and and communism. Um, we have Tong who commemorates it and uses him, uh, and then we have this huge literature and vast literature of Chem stories in actually children's literature. And I think this is actually um, a, a tool which is used to teach about Jewish culture and religion. And there we have also, of course, we, we have religious Chem uh, stories for children and we have completely non-religious stories for, for children. And so the, everyone uses Chem and that's what I like about Chem so much. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much uh, for talking to us uh, about your um, great book today, Ruth. Before we let you go, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? I'm happy to do this. I would like to mention two projects, a smaller one and a bigger one. The bigger one, as you as I mentioned before, that I was actually writing a larger, uh, working on a larger project on uh, Yiddish and German literature of the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. And I still have some chapters left. So um, one of the chapters, which is probably going to be a larger project, is Yiddish translations of the Bible based not on Hebrew texts, but on the German Christian Bible, especially Protestant Bibles. And this is very interesting for over 20 texts I have located so far, which use uh, the German texts and, of course, uh, change them as well. It's a very different topic from from Chelm, but it's a it's a very but very interesting one. And we have especially books which are not part of the Jewish canon. So this means they're not part of the Hebrew Bible, like the Book of Judith, the Book of Susanna, and uh, the Maccabees, for instance. But they are translated into Yiddish, printed in several editions, and they wait for me to to be read line by line. And I have a couple of smaller projects connected to the Chelm book, which I couldn't put into the Chelm book, book but by which I still want to work on. One is uh, at least an article about Herschele, uh, the fool, because I cannot leave the fools completely on their own. Um, and I want to look into the emergence of the Herschele stories, because that is, seems to be a more complicated story. So far, the legend goes that Herschele was the court fool of the grandson of the Basham Tov. This is probably not true. And that's what I would like to look into more closely. Well, they sound like great projects. And we certainly hope to have you back on new books in Jewish studies in the future. So thanks very much for talking with us today, uh, Ruth. Uh, You've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies uh, with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, And with us today, we had Ruth von Bernuth, and she talked to us about her new book, How the Wise Men Got to Helm, The Life and Times of Yiddish Folk Tradition, published in 2016 by New York University Press. Thanks very much. Thank you.